Hello, and welcome to Energy Oracles, a podcast series by Petroleum Economist. I'm Paul Hicking, Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined by Sarah Vakshuri, Founder and President of SVB Energy International and Senior Research Fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Paul. I'd like to start off to talk about probably one of the most pressing concerns or the two most pressing concerns of our time, which is energy security and the energy transition. Now, we've seen all the difficulties and uncertainty around what's going on in the Middle East and the Red Sea and in Gaza. Would you say energy security is now more pressing concern than the energy transition? And how do you see the energy dilemma and the competing priorities? Sure. Well, Paul, thanks for having me. It's always nice to speak with you. It's actually a very good question to start with because every day we are dealing with some new geopolitical upheaving somewhere in the world. And obviously, the question of energy security, or I would call it a wake-up call, goes back more than at the current crisis in the Middle East and goes back to Russia's invasion of Ukraine that suddenly everybody starts realizing that moving away from fossil fuel and rapidly accelerating the energy transition strategies also requires a wise calculation of energy security within their energy system. It became more pressing and important. However, I would not say that these are apart from each other, because as we see countries, each one for their own pathway, they are looking into also increasing the share of zero or low emission fuels or energy system. I would not say one is against the other one, but again, goes back to what is your perception or expectation of energy transition. What I would see, especially in, in light of the COP28, the agreement and the uh, global stock take that have been reached to an agreement during this meeting, I would say that all these countries that came to an agreement they came to an agreement and understanding of a more pragmatic pathway for energy transition. Yeah, it's a good point. And this is a question really for COP28. How much of a success was it? Was the fact that you had oil and gas leadership within it, is it a step in the right direction? Some people said, well, actually, this is the move towards now a more sustainable pathway. And some thought, well, actually oil and gas is kind of stopping this kind of acceleration. You said about it being a bit more pragmatic. It seems like there can be a bit, you know, we need more energy. Is there a sense of because we're going to need more of energy, we're going to still need fossil fuels, we're going to still need hydrocarbons as a part of this sort of growth in energy strategy to try and remove some of that, to meet some of that demand? Sure. So the thing is that if we talk about success, success depends on from whose perspective. But I would say this has been a collective success or a global success because it offers a flexibility for each country to choose its own pathway because energy transition is a journey that each country has its own unique environment, unique needs, and energy system. As an energy strategist, I will never have or can have one model of energy security strategy or energy system for everybody in the world. So every country would obviously have its own pathway for energy transition. And I would say that this global stock take, which was a result of COP28, offers a flexibility to every country to 
choose its own unique pathway. And if you look at it, especially when you look at the global stock take, the paragraph 28, it gives the whole series of options to countries. And it obviously requires the tripling of renewable energy capacity globally. This is something that is achievable around the world mostly by 2030 because most of countries could increase the capacity of renewables in in their energy system, let's say, by triple, two times more. And also not just only looking at energy production, but also on demand because this is stock take, global stock take. It enforces, or we can say really enforces, but encouraging doubling the global average of annual rate of energy efficiency improvement. And we know that by improvement of energy efficiency, we will put a ceiling on demand growth or we will reduce the speed of demand growth. So efficiency, energy efficiency is important as well to kind of mitigate and manage the demand side. And this is something that global stock take of this COP has looked at it. There is an acceleration for phasing down the unabated coal power, those coal power generation that the CO2 emissions are not abated are going to be phased down and their phase down should be accelerated. We see that, for instance, in the U.S., Biden administration has a goal of net zero or a low emission power generation by 2035. Then we have other options like moving away from fossil fuel subsidies, unless it's subsidizing energy poverty, but if it's not needed, should be uh, phased out. There are all sorts of different recommendations. For instance, in terms of technologies, it recommends technologies that are, let's say, new technologies in renewables. Nuclear is encouraged to increase the role of nuclear. Technologies that are removing emissions or carbon, like, let's say, carbon capture and utilization and storage technologies. All of this, you see that it's offering all sorts of options and recommendations that all of them help the world together move toward a lower emission energy system in the decades to come. And something that is important is also when we are looking, you mentioned energy trilemma. We need to make sure that while we're moving toward the low emission or net zero goals, for preserving the environment, obviously. We need to make sure that this transition is secure in terms of energy security, its supplies are sustainable, but also are affordable because we currently have significant poverty and you know very well that there is a nexus between energy, safe water, and also food supply. So we need to make sure that transition is this energy is affordable and transition does not create more poverty, but in fact reduces the poverty. It's as we call it a just transition. So I would say that this is a global success. And again, you mentioned to producing because looking into future, the demand is increasing. Why? Because population is growing, economic prosperity is growing in the world. And also we should not discount the role and energy consumption that we have in AI and the backbone of energy transition is electrification. It needs a lot of cloud processing, computer processing, and AI, which uses a lot of energy and electricity. In future, we are looking into consuming more energy. The demand is increasing. Therefore, we have to produce more energy. And This global stock take and all future of energy is about addition. We need to add new 
capacity. And that capacity that has to be added to the current system, it has to be, let's say, zero or low emission. Because we cannot afford at the current moment to phase out or phase down from the capacity that we have currently because we have we need that. The only thing we can do is to try to remove the carbon and remove the emissions from the current system. Yeah, that's a good point with about electrification as well. And you picked out a few things that seem to have gone under the radar. The fact it's a focus on emissions rather than fossil fuels, it being one of them. And the fact is that CCUS was kind of a political football a, a little bit, and it seems to have got in as another option on the table, which seems like, like you said, that seems to be the main success that everything has been on the table, given that to achieve a just transition, to achieve this kind of electrification, scale of electrification we need globally and to alleviate poverty. But I was wondering on that point as well, we haven't really talked about gas and where COP28 left gas. It seemed to be kind of the, it's unwritten that it's kind of the transition fuel and it sort of plays a kind of a weird role between hydrocarbon and transition and sustainable fuel. How do you see gas within the context of all this? Actually, this is a very good point, Paul, because right after the paragraph 20, paragraph 29, it recognizes the transitional fuels and the important role that they are going to play in facilitating the energy transition while ensuring energy security. As we see that, again, going back to that trilemma, energy transition coupled with energy security and affordability, transitional fuels are very important. And we all know that natural gas is very important when it comes into transitional fuels. And again, yes, I think this is a success in terms of having a pragmatic view toward a net zero and a net zero goals. Are we concerned about color or carbon? And if you see that, like this document also talks about hydrogen, but low carbon hydrogen, it doesn't talk about color. Should the color of hydrogen be green from renewables or blue from fossil fuel or pink from nuclear or gray, you want to call it? As long as the hydrogen is low carbon and as long as we can mitigate that carbon, we are going to reach our goal. So it's not just about color, but carbon. That's the main goal. However, here, on the same day that this document was signed, I was in Oman, in Mastat, and there was a meeting between the government of Oman with different major countries that are considered to be future off-takers of hydrogen, which are European Union, Japan, and South Korea. If you look at these three different major off-takers of hydrogen, there are different views. Obviously, Japan and South Korea are not so much concerned about color, but much more about carbon. As long as, for instance, a country like Oman or Saudi Arabia or any hydrogen producers would supply them a low carbon hydrogen, they would be satisfied. However, on the same day, in the same meeting with European Union, they were looking at this COP moving away from transition into absolutely zero emission hydrogen and they were insisting on color green and they were requiring for instance Oman to give them a whole supply chain certificate that this hydrogen came from fully green chain so again this as i say you can look at the european union they want it green absolutely okay i mean a country the supplier can give them 
a whole certification of green, well, the cost might be higher, but a country like Japan or South Korea could still contribute to net zero goals, uh, global net zero goals, or follow the global stock take recommendation by offtaking and consuming a low carbon hydrogen. It seems we get back to the same point, but the main theme, which is pragmatism, getting away from the idea of ideological purity. Especially, I think, from my perspective, you talk about pathways, and you're right. I mean, countries in Africa and Latin America and even in Asia seem to gas the clean fuel if you're talking about coal or wood burning. So, yeah, it's a good point. I would like to talk a little bit about, go back a bit to the security angle, what we've seen around sanctions, the situation on Russia, Iran, Venezuela, seem to have different degrees of effectiveness, or maybe that's the point. And they seem to be a bit of a revolving door. One gets tightened, another gets eased. How do you see the sanction situation and now, and how do you see it evolving? Before answering this question, Paul, I want to add something to our discussion about previous topic. You mentioned pragmatism. I'm not an energy producer. I'm not an oil company. So my pragmatism is not because of a business or money that I have stakes in. It's because of the human rights. And you know that I also try to look into energy access as part of the SVB Green Access. And we try to work in countries, let's say, like Namibia, Madagascar. South Africa. And when you go underground in areas that are suffering from energy poverty, the situation is horrifying. And when we are sitting and talking about it, for us, it's just one word, affordability. However, when we talk about energy poverty, I would say it's human right. Having access to electricity, having access to sanitation, to water, to food, secure, sustainable source of food, these are fundamentals of human rights. And we cannot ignore billions of people have no access to food, to electricity, to clean cooking, to safe water. And it's really hard to bring access. You know, we tried. We looked at technologies that how we could simplify technologies to bring safe water or electricity in a small community. But because these communities are dark and have been dark for a long time, the poverty is so huge and intense that it's so hard. It's like a question of egg or chicken. We cannot bring simply a unit of electricity because the community is so poor that cannot pay to sustain that electricity. And you cannot empower the community before having water and electricity. Especially in case of Madagascar, you talked about wood burning, that in terms of clean cooking, the woods in Madagascar is rapidly, deforestation is diminishing because of the need for a fuel for people for cooking. But again, a clean cooking could not just be one single solution because we need a multidimensional solution to tackle poverty. So energy, when it comes to tackling poverty, affordability is really important and we really cannot afford discount any types of fuel. We can only hope for having a low carbon and low emission fuel and also net zero. There are a lot of opportunities for renewable. Well, going to the question about sanction, it seems that U.S. sanctions are losing their efficiency and effectiveness when it comes to the three countries you mentioned. Well, Iran sanctions 
specifically Iranian sanctions on Iranian oil export, starting under President Obama time, which countries were required to significantly reduce their imports, which was about 20 to 25 percent of their imports from Iran. And at that time, shale oil was increasing. So it was easier for Obama administration to negotiate with importers, China, India, Europe, South Korea, and Japan to reduce their imports from Iran. Then we had the maximum pressure under President Trump, which Iranian oil export reached to almost zero. It was about 200, 250,000 barrels, which was going to China as a debt repayment. But looking at it now, Iran is exporting about 1.4, 1.5 million barrels of oil. Also, add condensing and liquids will be more than that. Looking at Russia, it's also worse than Iran because Russian energy has not been misplaced by sanctions. Yes, they voluntarily might cut back their production or exports, but sanctions could not do that. And also the price gap on Russia... At the very beginning, when this idea of price gap came out, I was one of the people arguing that this is not going to be effective. Price gap was not effective even to slow down Russia's economy. If you look at any of these major credible data producing and forecasting reports, you see that Russian economy growth has been constantly revised higher and higher than expectations. So it's very hard to put sanctions on the major producers. You can use that as a weapon against them, at least in this environment. Russia is specifically a very different case because the sheer amount of energy that Russia is supplying in terms of liquid, natural gas, but also if you look at it, nuclear energy, nuclear power generation has been looked at as one of the fuels that could enhance energy security, even by European countries, by European Union. Now, in terms of taxation, nuclear is now recognized as a green fuel. However, if we look at geopolitics of nuclear energy, Russia plays a huge dominant role in terms of nuclear technology, nuclear financing, and processing and enriching nuclear fuel. Even in the United States, where I am now, when President Biden announced the voluntarily ban of any type of energy imports from Russia after the Ukraine war, maybe it was not communicated clearly, but nuclear fuel imports has been excluded from those sanctions. And even until now, United States is still importing nuclear fuel for its power generation from Russia. And if you expand that to nuclear isotopes for medical purposes, the story is even gloomier in terms of dependency and global dependency, even United States dependency on imports of these isotopes from Russia. There are some of those medical isotopes that exclusively are produced by Russia. If there is any, let's say, sanction, I mean, if Russia wanted to retaliate, let's say on US or in European Union or countries in future that are going purely nuclear, the price of nuclear fuel goes up, the price of electricity is going up. Or if the nuclear fuel exports are interrupted, the electricity supplies could be facing challenges. And also is the price. If the price of these nuclear isotopes goes higher or the price of electricity goes higher, these are going to have dangerous consequences. I would say, again, going back to that energy security strategy and also the need for considering all these geopolitical aspects, these are all very critical.
today that me and you are speaking and there are tensions in Babel Mandab in Red Sea. And it's not just oil or gas passing, but there are minerals that are coming from Africa to China are passing through these choke points. So even for energy transition, that we require a lot of minerals, a lot of processed fuels and minerals. All these choke points still stay relevant. Yeah, it's a good point that security demand and security supply are two sides of the same ledger, aren't they? And and you mentioned the situation around the choke points. It seems like 2024 is another critical year. We've got a plethora of elections, probably the biggest one being the US elections. We've got OPEC fragility, questions of OPEC unity given Angola's departure and the stress testing of global economic weakness, trying to get inflation under control, China demand questions. It is. The thing is that I'm energy security strategist. So for me, my job is to look at and anticipate vulnerabilities, risks and the impacts of risks on the vulnerabilities and increase the risk acceptance and resilience. So we cannot discount any vulnerability or risk that could happen in the world. And those risks could be COVID, could be a Ukraine war, could be any sanctions or conflict in the choke points. However, as long as we have a high risk acceptance and we have mitigation scenarios for mitigating that, we could maintain economy or supplies or demand security, as you mentioned very well. If you look at it in 2024, while we have all all of these tensions, geopolitical tensions that could interrupt perhaps the transportation of the fuel or increase insurance rates. But if you look at in terms of market fundamentals, we see that market is really healthy in terms of both having a growth in demand, but also having a growth of supply. And a big chunk of this supply growth comes from non-OPEC and non-OPEC plus countries. And let's say like United States, Canada. We see that if we look at it in terms of market balance, market is in a good shape and a balance. And you mentioned about the coherence of OPEC. I see that the coherence and the alliance is still strong. And as we see from last year, we start having a more larger, deeper voluntary cut by major OPEC plus producers like Saudi Arabia and Russia. Many people, many analysts last year were seeing these supply cuts, voluntary supply cuts, as a sign of a recession. However, we had, let's say, Saudi energy minister warning that, no, there's not going to be a demand cut. At the same time, OPEC reports were showing that there's going to be a healthy demand growth. So mystery solved. We are going to have additional supply in the market. If there are any cuts, there are mitigations. And I would say that I still see the OPEC plus alliance going hand in hand while some countries can cut back further. They are doing that in a voluntary matter so they can still have a better understanding of the market in terms of proactive and preemptive strategies to work in the market. This is exactly the strategies that Saudi energy minister mentioned, no, being proactive and preemptive. They are monitoring the market closely and they're adjusting their policies month to month, season to season. So I won't see any weakness in terms of OPEC plus. But on the other side, we see that non-OPEC plus production is also increasing. And let's say U.S. production and U.S. export going from different 
maritime uh, lines. I would say in terms of supply and demand, the market is pretty healthy, unless we have something, let's say, major or huge happening that could create some hiccups. And on that note, you say about you look at risk and strategy for risk. And is there anything the market or the industry should be looking at that may be a bit under the radar, that's something we should be paying attention to, but we're not? I know one of the things that a lot of the market commentators talk about is now the Red Sea issue, straight over Muz is the one risk, or could something, what the risk to Saudi Arabia and the supply disruptions there? What's your take on potential maybe outlier risks or some things that may be going under the radar? Sure. Well, in terms of geopolitics and politics in the Middle East and in the region that you mentioned, I would say something that has been gone wild is Iran and Houthis activities in the region that, while it seems that there's not really a major consequences or accountability that they're facing from, let's say, US side or European side, there hasn't been a major response back to Iran or to Houthis that it would stop them. But in terms of, let's say, Houthis attack on Saudi Arabia, I don't see that because what I think happened, the rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran actually is the fundamental of what we see now, despite all these tensions in the region, we feel that calm still at the core, things are calm because as long as these major powers in the region, in that neighborhood are in I would say either not alliance, but in a positive terms, and they can trust each other at the time of tensions, that would prevent any major risks. So still, I'm positive that hopefully things will not going to be intensified in a shocking matter. However, we should always be ready for surprises. In, in terms of other issues that personally I follow and I look that are important for me is obviously energy poverty. And that energy poverty, when you go on the ground, again, as I said, when you want to come up with the strategies and solutions to tackle energy poverty is really, really complicated. And making this from word and decisions to action is actually really a complicated task. And I would like to invite everybody really just to think beyond words and decisions and just the money that is allocated, but it's not really going on the ground, invested on the ground in an effective manner. The second issue is obviously transition to low carbon and zero emission. But what are other factors? For instance, when we look at renewables, the installed capacity of some of these renewables, let's say wind or solar, is not always the actual capacity of that power generation. If somewhere in Scotland, we are having a massive deforestation to create a wind turbine farm, but that wind turbine farm, we should see that how much of that power generation, what is the actual power generation? Because if there's no wind or a seasonal change of wind speed, obviously at that time, we don't have that much of power generation. So be more efficient and more mindful when we use this renewable energy. If you're having a lot of unutilized land, let's say in Oman and you want to, or in Morocco, or UAE, convert this to a solar farm, well done. But in United States, my fear is a food security because I have been approached by farmers in Kansas that are producing major supply of wheat and meat and dairy in the U.S. and also exporting it globally. They have been approached by renewable power generation companies to lease their land to these companies to 
convert these farms into solar farms. And if you're a farmer, would you do that? Absolutely, because it's risk-free and you're making way more profit than planting, let's say, grain or corn or wheat. These are the concerns that if energy transition is hasty and these policies are just, let's say, subsidizing renewables, solar or wind farms, let's say in the United States, and everybody wants to use those incentives, and there is not a careful and mindful understanding of our farmlands, our food becoming a solar farm, then these are, I would say, risks that are have been on the radar. And the final and most important ones, beside the nuclear that I already mentioned, and the geopolitics of nuclear and nuclear isotopes, my major concern is that AI and electrification has been on the radar that AI is rapidly increasing and it needs a lot of energy. And no one has exact understanding and calculation of how much is AI's demand in future. All these demand scenarios we have for future are based on population growth and economic growth. No one actually can anticipate the speed of growth of AI and its energy need. And for all of these electrification We need minerals. There has been a lot of discussions on geopolitics of minerals, China's dominance over minerals. But my concern is, again, the fact that has been gone on the radar is human rights issues in terms of mining and not just the pollution and emissions that we have in the mining process and the geopolitical factor dependency on, let's say, China or one or two, three countries instead of diversity the human rights. There are a lot of forced labor and human rights violation when it comes to, let's say, cobalt mining, which 70-80% of mines are in the hands of China and Chinese companies. And if I want to summarize, going back to energy security, I think we all have to go, or I think many countries and governments have also reached this conclusion that really the solution to energy security and a secure transition it goes back to all its traditional solution, which was Churchill's solution back in time, going back all the way to First World War. That diversity and diversification is the solution to energy security. No, that's a great point. I love the message of the human rights of energy. And I think that's an undervalued and understated point. Thanks again, Sarah. And thanks for listening, everyone. Please check out Petroleum Economist, Hydro Economist and Carbon Economist. Thanks again.